Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let me pray as we begin the message this morning. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you are a good father. Thank you that um, you have given us good gifts especially the great gift of your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I ask that in this place today, that our minds and our hearts would be renewed, that we would have a a strong sense that you are doing a work, that you are continuing to make us more like Christ. And so I pray that any fear, any discouragement, any burden that we carry, that in this place, um, we can lay it down before you and trust that you are a good father who does good things for his children. And I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you'll probably have had moments in your life where you can't believe the good things that God has done for you. Maybe you can even think of some of those moments just as I say that. Maybe it's the moment you came to faith. Maybe it's something God did that you never expected or imagined. I remember the first time I saw someone healed of something that was just a debilitating illness. And I thought, if there's no healing, then where, what does life look like for this person? And God healed them. And it was amazing. It was so, so cool to see. But along with that, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you've probably had moments in your life where you don't understand what Jesus is doing. You've probably had moments in your life where Jesus doesn't do what you expect him to do. Because I've also prayed for other people to be healed. And they said, oh, Lord, this person must be healed. And they haven't been healed. And I said, Jesus, why not? You've had moments where Jesus doesn't do what you desperately want him to do. And sometimes when we have these expectations of Jesus, they can lead us, and, and when it feels like Jesus maybe isn't coming in to meet that need, it can lead us to places of disappointment or frustration, of questioning God's goodness or his purposes. I found an article from September of 2015 where a journalist was writing an article for the New York Times Sunday Review, and he thought it would be interesting to do an article titled Googling for God. And so what he did is he took 10 years of data from Google search saying, what is the most searched for terms when people type things about God? And this is what he came up with. After 10 years of looking at Google search data, what are the top things that people Googled about God? And he found that the most Googled questions about God included, these were the top three. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God hate me? Why did God make me ugly? There's a thread binding the top three Google searches about God. It's really disappointment with God. And as we look at Jesus today on Palm Sunday, entering the city of Jerusalem, just before he's betrayed, arrested, and crucified, I believe we see in the crowd of people, um, this, this crowd cheering and praising Jesus, a group of people whose expectations and demands of Jesus were not in line with the deeper work that Jesus was going to do. They had expectations and hopes that Jesus was not going to meet because Jesus was doing a greater work, but they didn't know that. So I think about that crowd of people who cheered Jesus, who laid their cloaks on the road and waved palm branches in the air and said, Hosanna. We look further on in the week and we don't really see many people cheering Jesus anymore. 
We see that so many of them became disillusioned, doubtful, disappointed. Some of them may even became hostile and angry as it appeared that Jesus was not going to do what they expected or wanted him to do. Jesus is a king, but he wasn't the king that they wanted because he's a king who serves rather than be served. He will die at the hands of the hated Roman occupiers. He enters Jerusalem unarmed, waging peace, and the people wanted a takeover. Give us a king like like David. Jonathan Merritt writes that this makes a larger point that God doesn't intend to meet our expectations. Instead, he meets our needs. People had deep need, but they didn't even know what their need was. But they had expectations that were far more shallow than what Jesus was going to do. But Jonathan Merritt continues, he says, well, maybe you picture God as a heavenly bellhop whose job is basically to satisfy your deepest desires. Maybe for you, God has become a holy matchmaker who's there to secure you a perfect spouse. Maybe God is a cosmic bodyguard there to protect you from all harm. Or maybe he's the world's best nanny, making sure your children turn out just fine. Or he's a divine doctor, healing every physical illness and mental ailment. Or maybe he's a wonder-working accountant, solving all your financial problems. Of course, you've got to give your 10% to the church, right? That's part of that. Anyways. <laughs> what he's saying, though, is he's like, people tend to assume that God is the deity that they want. We often have this problem of creating a God in our own image. And this actually can work pretty well, as long as God seems to do what we want him to do. But the moment he doesn't conform to our expectations, it can rattle and shake our whole world. You can think of the examples. A person that you love leaves you for somebody else, or a friend dies before their time, or at least the time that you think. They're too young. And the expectations you place in God can actually turn into areas of distrust, disappointment, disillusion. And so the question becomes, can we follow Jesus even when we don't understand what he's doing? And how can we follow Jesus when our whole world gets shaken and God's not doing what we expect or feel we need him to do? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the young donkey that day, many of the people in the crowd were enamored with Jesus, right? And they had specific ideas on how Jesus could make their lives better. And when it seemed as though Jesus was going to let them down, when he he was arrested and the cross became the reality, they turned away from him, and I think some probably even turned on him. See, everyone had different ideas of what Jesus should do for them, but I'll tell you this, nobody thought crucifixion was the best plan. There's not one person in that crowd who said, you know what I think he should do? I think he should die. Nobody thought that. Some thought he was going to overthrow Rome, reestablish the sovereign nation of Israel. Others were in that crowd that day because Jesus was a healer and a great teacher, and they celebrated him for that. And others maybe had different expectations of Jesus. But when Jesus came to Jerusalem, we know he's just a few days away from being arrested and crucified. And nobody expected that. Not even his closest followers expected that, even though he did give them forewarning, but they weren't able to hear it. And I think there was some in the crowd who originally cheered Jesus who were maybe shouting later in the week, crucify him. I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to go, the person that you so celebrate, the person you put on the pedestal because he's going to do this amazing thing when he doesn't do it, you go from idolization to demonization very quickly. Others probably just drifted away, disappointed, disillusioned that Jesus didn't come through how they wanted him to. Even though we don't see the whole picture or know the whole story, sometimes we too can be like those in the crowd. We had this expectation of what God would do. And when he doesn't do it, when he doesn't come through for us, it can be easy to just 
not even turn our back, we just distance ourselves. We've got this hurt now, we've got this disappointment. And so, as I've wrestled with things like this, I've, I've come to this conclusion that we, we must follow Jesus because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, not just because we want a quick fix or a problem-free life, because Jesus actually promises us a troubled life. He says, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I think on Palm Sunday, and as we think about the rest of the week, as it leads us to Good Friday and then to the resurrection, I think what we start to see is the truth about the hearts of people and that we often cannot understand the plans and the purposes that God has. We often cannot see the good that can come from suffering. And we sometimes allow external circumstances to shake our faith and our trust in God. And so I want to begin in our text today um, where Donna actually started in in her communion reading, Luke chapter 19. After the uh, disciples had acquired the donkey for him, we read this. Luke 19.36 is where we begin. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now Jesus came down near the path, down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And we know, we know that Jesus, by this point in his ministry, had been drawing massive crowds for a long time. The people loved to hear him speak. Great crowds would flock to Jesus. His words spoke to people's hearts, right? They said, he speaks with authority. Who speaks like this? And they had the ring of truth to them, just as his words do today. And the things that Jesus could do were amazing. Blind eyes would see again. Lame legs were healed. Paralysis was removed. Demons were cast out. Jesus gave hopeless people hope. That's why this crowd is gathering. This is the man who can do what no other man can do. And it is true that in the presence of Jesus, a person could dream something that would be an impossible dream, and it would come true. Parents brought their children to Jesus so that Jesus would bless them. Relatives brought their loved ones so that Jesus might touch them and heal them. Hopeless hearts in the presence of Jesus could hope again. Jesus gave hopeless people hope. That's why Jesus is greeted with joy as he enters the city, because Jesus is the one who can make impossible things possible. He is the one who can transform life with a word and with a touch. He did it then, and he does it today. I've seen it. You've seen it. We believe it. We read the people cheering for Jesus praised God for all the miracles they had seen, right? So imagine what's happening as Jesus is coming into the city. The people are sharing the stories of what Jesus has done. They're going, he healed me. Or they're saying, I saw him when the man was lowered through the roof and he healed the man and the Pharisees were mad about it or whatever it is, they're sharing the stories. And they're saying, he is the, the miracle worker. And so this leads that crowd to this massive celebration and this great expectation. But what they didn't know is that Jesus was preparing for the greatest miracle of all. That he was gonna take the sin of the world in his body on the cross. He was gonna pay the price for our sin and he was going to die. And then even more miraculous, he would defeat death and he would rise again to life. But the crowds cheering him that day were not going to be able to see that bigger picture. They would not know the miracle that was occurring on that cross. The cross looks like defeat, although it is the greatest victory. So despite the enthusiasm and the joy of the crowd on that day, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is actually the beginning of the end of the, of the public approval of Jesus. And as the week unfolds, you kind of see it's all downhill until Good Friday. 
The huge crowds of supporters and even Jesus' inner circle would not stick around as the cross approaches. And this is why as Jesus sees the city spread out in front of him, he begins to weep. We'll pick up again in Luke 19, chapter... Luke 19, verse 46, I believe. My pages are stuck together. It's getting really... There we go. As Jesus, verse 41, as Jesus approached the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day that what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Some commentators reflect that when we read that word weeping, that we could, we could kind of infer from it that it's a fairly intense sobbing or even a loud wailing. That Jesus is actually overcome with intense sorrow as he sees the city spread out before him. And you get the sense that Jesus almost couldn't control this emotion, right? This sorrow that wells up within him. And we ask, well, okay, why is Jesus weeping? Well, this is his city. And these are his people. He is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, but at this moment, only a few people will embrace his kingdom reign. And Jesus is weeping for the people. He's not weeping for himself. He cries because the city will not recognize him for who he is, the one who comes to bring peace. And he comes as the savior, the Lord, and the king, but they they won't see it. And the ones who cheer him now will abandon him soon. And it's almost as though Jesus is giving them two options. You can follow me and the way of peace. And there's going to be flourishing for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Or you can deny and reject me and you can go this other way that is presented to you, the way of rebellion, the way of violence, the way of aggression. And if you go that way, and then he's prophetic, if you go that way, your enemies will come against you. And that's what happens. Rome eventually crushes uh, crushes the temple and crushes some of the people. Jesus says that enemies will come and besiege the city. They'll kill people and not even one stone will be left upon the other and that indeed does happen. And Jesus is is weeping over this. The tears of Jesus, I think, help us see the heart of God when people's choices and actions lead them to destruction. Jesus is not gloating over over the city with the sense of I told you so or it serves you right. Jesus is shaking with sobs and with weeping and Jesus declares this judgment not from a stern and cold place of of justice act, but it's actually coming from his heart of love. He's saying, I know this is happening, but I don't, this isn't my desire for you. Yet because of the people's rejection and rebellion, he says, this is what will happen. Jesus, as I said, was doing a deeper work than anyone could imagine. You look at the religious leaders and they just wanted another rabbi who would agree with them, but Jesus often didn't. Many people wanted Jesus to be a king like David, restoring Israel to glory. And others probably were just happy, hey, just keep teaching and doing miracles for as long as you're able. It's pretty cool. In a way, those desires actually come from a good place, right? They come from people who want good things from Jesus. And I think this is one of those things that I wrestle with because when I've seen Jesus do amazing things, it's come from a good desire. And then when I've seen Jesus say no or say not yet or say wait, My desire is still good. I I just want good things. But he's often doing something deeper that I don't understand. Jesus is doing a deeper work. Other people weren't disappointed in Jesus. I think they just weren't able to stand firm when they were faced with a challenge to their faith. 
When difficulty came, they doubted everything that they had once believed because the difficulty, the trial that Jesus was leading them to was more intense than they had expected. I always think of Peter. I love Peter. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And and Peter says, no way, right? Absolutely not. Not even if everyone in this room denies you, I never will. Just a few verses later, here's Peter denying he ever knew Jesus three different times because Peter didn't expect, he didn't anticipate, he didn't know how difficult it would be. And in that moment, his faith was shaken. As Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you. And that's what Peter is. He's sifted. His faith is shaken. He sees Jesus being led away. He knows what's, what's on the other side of that. He knows that, that everything that they've been doing is now falling apart, or at least that's what it seems like to him in the moment. And he does what he never expected he would do. He, he doubts. He denies. I think about when Jesus was on his way to Calvary, carrying the burden of his cross. And I think there's two processions of Jesus, right? There's the procession, the triumphal entry in. And there's kind of the, what looks like the march of defeat to the hill of Calvary. Both, both those processions, there's crowds of people. In one, the crowd is saying, Hosanna, praise the king. And the other, they're shouting, crucify him. And I think about this, I think, you know, you you imagine his back ripped open from the whippings and and a crown of thorns on his brow and he stumbles with the weight of the cross and he needs someone to bear the weight of the cross. And you think, well, surely someone from the crowd just, just a few days earlier would jump to his aid. There's nobody. Where's his disciples? Surely one of the 12 or one of the 72, wouldn't they come and help? They're nowhere to be found. A stranger, Simon of Cyrene, no longer a stranger, has to be compelled. You just wonder, where were those crowds who cheered and shouted, who said, God has given us a king, long live the king, let all heaven rejoice. Well, they, they weren't found. The people who once rejoiced at Jesus were now confused, disillusioned, disappointed. Jesus was going to die, and how could he be a king if he's going to die? And their faith was shaken, and, and sometimes their faith was outright lost when their expectations were not met. He didn't do what we thought he would do. Now again, Jesus was doing a deeper work, but they couldn't see it. They doubted. They walked away. And we've probably all had moments in life where we didn't understand what God was doing, where we couldn't see the deeper work that he was doing. And maybe now on being able to look back, we can see his hand at work, but, or sometimes maybe we're still not sure what he was doing or where he was. But one thing we do know is that even when we cannot see God at work, even when we question and doubt and deal with disappointment, God does not abandon us. Because even as Jesus walked to the hill where he was crucified, he did not abandon anyone. Although everyone else abandoned him, he did not abandon them. Even in your doubt, even in your disappointment, even in your disillusion, God does not abandon you. Because God knows that we are but human, that we are weak. It says in the Psalms, he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. And you go, well, is there any way back? If I've doubted, if I've walked away, if my faith has been shaken, is there any way back? And I say, absolutely. I look at Peter, denied Jesus three times. And then we see Peter on the beach 
Actually, first he's in the boat. He recognizes Jesus on the beach. He dives into the water, and he swims to Jesus, says Jesus is resurrected now, and Jesus forgives him. And Peter becomes the first evangelist of the church. And, and I would imagine any of those who turn their backs on Jesus at his death, even maybe ones who began to chant, crucify him, they're always welcome to come to Jesus if they choose to come. It's like the father in the prodigal son's story. If you return to him, he'll return to you. So you might say, I hear stories of people, right? And, and their faith is shaken when someone isn't healed. Their faith is shaken when a, a tragedy occurs and they say, I don't know, how could a good God allow this to happen? And they go, would, and then they start to, to maybe enter back into faith, but they go, would God even have me? I say, absolutely he would. That's the father we have. That's the God that we have, that he understands your, your disappointment. He understands that you can't always see the whole picture. And if you come to him, he runs to you, puts his arms around you, gives you a hug, and celebrates. He doesn't hold your weakness, you're turning away against you. But if we do want to have a faith that's able to endure hardship and trial, disappointment and silence, then we need to understand that Jesus is always at work. His presence is always, always with us. And we might not understand what he's doing. We might not even sense his presence. But the one who died to save us will never leave us. I take great comfort in this. And I've used this before. I'm like, if Jesus died for you, he's not now going to abandon you. You might not sense him but he's there. He doesn't leave you. And he might be doing a deeper work than you know. And he will redeem all things and work all things together for the good of those who love him. So when our faith is shaken, because if you live the life of faith in this life, you're, sometimes your faith is going to be shaken. And when difficulties come up, we have to stand on the truth that Jesus has transformed us. He's made us a new creation. He's empowered us with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the main reason we follow Jesus is because of who he is, not because of what he can do for us. I follow Jesus because he's the son of God who took on flesh, who died on a cross to pay the penalty of my sin, who rose again to secure eternal life with him, who dwells within me by the Holy Spirit. And if this is who Jesus is, then who else could I follow? If he's done all this for me, then even in my moment of greatest difficulty and even in my moments of greatest doubt, I go, but he died to save me. And one day all things will be put right under his feet. And I know it's so hard to see that when the pain is overwhelming now. It's so hard to believe this when the unmanageable tragedy has happened. That's why you need a community of faith to remind you, to hold you up, to walk with you to say, even here, God is doing something. God is good. And one day, one day, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more sickness, no more tragedy. That's our hope. And we have to believe that he works not against us, but for us, especially in those difficult times. You know, for a lot of us, for a lot of us, until we reach that place of tragedy in, in North America, following Jesus can be a pretty pleasant experience. But I, you know that around the world, for a lot of people, when they decide to follow Jesus, it means a lot of things externally in their life are, are going to start to change. It's going to feel, it's gonna start to feel hard. When I was in India meeting some of the pastors, not all of them, but some of them were coming from villages where to follow Jesus now meant that they would no longer have a job. 
Their families would no longer accept them. Uh, on New Year's Day, just before, I went in February, on January 1st, in one of the villages in northern India, um, a group of Christians were worshiping, and the, the rest of the village came at them with sticks and with stones and chased them out of the village and beat them. So they worshiped in the forest. They didn't leave the faith. They said, this is what it is to follow Jesus. And it's not only just around the world. Like, sometimes it happens here. I, I met a man at a church planters network that I was invited to. And uh, the first day at our, our networking, he sh- we shared our stories of, you know, faith. And, and he shared how he came to faith later in life. He had already had two adult children. He had a teenager at home. He shared how he actually left a very high-paying, lucrative job to pursue ministry. Because once he came to faith, he felt God say, okay, you're mine now. You've got to do the work of ministry that I've called you to. So he stepped into it. And eventually his family, except for his wife, who, who also came to faith, abandoned him. His parents, who were elderly at that point, told him to stop writing emails to them. They were so embarrassed that their son, who had this once amazing, high-paying, lucrative job, would, would become a minister of all things. How do you tell your friends at the golf course that your son, who was once this powerful man in, in business, is now what? Planting a church in downtown Edmonton? His own adult children refused to speak to him. They told him, don't bother contacting us until you're done with this stupid phase you're in. And even his teenager moved out of the house in with one of his siblings. You know, following Jesus cost this man a highly paid, successful career, relationships with his parents, and even his own children didn't understand him. Yet he still follows Jesus. He's, he was one of the most passionate followers of Jesus I've ever met. You know, if he gave up following Jesus, his family would probably embrace him, say, wow, I'm glad that phase is over. But he follows Jesus still. He follows Jesus not because everything in life got magically better, but because he knows Jesus' truth and Jesus' life. And that's not to say that things in his life didn't change for the better. Because as he would put it, he's a new creation. He once was ruled by greed, by a, a lust for power. He said, those things don't exist in me anymore. So he'd say, my heart now was once filled with anxiety and, and angst and even some anger and all these ugly things and it was crushing me, but now my heart is filled with peace, with love, with joy, with righteousness because of Jesus. In fact, just as he came to faith, he was miraculously healed. He'd gone through a mysterious illness that doctors couldn't figure out that was causing weakness in his body. And in a moment of desperation, he cried out for healing from Jesus and he was instantly healed. And so he's a new creation. He says, and his faith is this. He goes, I know my family right now has rejected me. But when they see the man I've become, they're not going to reject me for long. When they see the change in me, when they see what Jesus has done in me, I believe they're going to come. They're going to follow. So some of you here today might be, maybe you're going through a difficult time in your faith, maybe a difficult time in your life. Maybe your faith is being shaken. You thought God was going to do one thing and he didn't. Maybe you're in a place where you're not sure where Jesus even is in your life. He seems distant. He seems far away, and, and things just seem to be getting more difficult. Maybe like the crowds that once cheered Jesus and then became disillusioned and turned away, you're just not sure what God could possibly be thinking, and you're in a place of wonder and question and discouragement and even, and even doubt. Well, I just want to encourage you today that he knows how weak we are. He knows that we are only dust. He doesn't hold this against you. But I think it's my job and your church family's job to encourage you today to keep the faith. We see in Palm Sunday that Jesus was doing a greater and deeper work than anyone could have anticipated. And I want to encourage you today that no matter what it is you're going through, Jesus is doing something. He's doing a work there. 
It says in Romans that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we can't always see how that's going to happen. But I believe it. I've seen it. And so I want to encourage you today, keep the faith. Don't turn away. Don't become discouraged. Don't lose heart. No matter what's happening, God's presence is with you. God is not giving us an escape from troubles or problems, but he's giving us something better. He's giving us himself. In times of desperation, suffering, or trial, there's opportunity to walk away from that shallow faith with a genie like God who just gives us everything we desire. And it's an opportunity to embrace the true God who redeems us and refines us in suffering as much as in blessing. Do you believe God uses even times of suffering to refine? I believe that. I also know he blesses, but we hold both. And it's in those times of suffering that that we draw closer to him in deeper and more meaningful ways. When everything else has been stripped away, and there's nothing left, that's when God begins to speak. So for those of you who might be struggling today, I just want to close by reading scripture. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would use this as an encouragement to you. I'm going to call the worship team up to get ready as I read this scripture. And I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and then I'm going to read the scripture. Holy Spirit, I ask that for those who are dealing with discouragement, with doubt, with faith that is shaken... I pray that the words of your scripture today would be a powerful renewal, that it would be a light that shines in the place of pain. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. We are pressed on every side by trouble, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. We rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So we ask, Father, that for those who have been experiencing discouragement, for those who have been walking through pain, who've experienced sorrow, I pray that in this moment, by your Holy Spirit, our hearts would be filled with the knowledge of your love, that our minds would be renewed with the truth that that this life is not the only life there is, that there is a time coming when all the sorrow, all the tears, all the pain will be taken, and we will live in joyful union with you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to see even when we cannot see. I pray you'd help us to see and believe that you are with us. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.